the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 142, covering the week of October 15th through October 19th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to find all these things, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. you got all our social media buttons at the top of the page. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll also get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday with a link to this podcast. Remember that you can also get the Abbeville Institute on the go. Just go to your favorite web application store, whether it's Google, uh, Google Play, iTunes, and download the free Abbeville Institute app. You will get our podcast in that app along with all of our lectures, over 200 of those, and the access to the website on the go. And remember, everything we do on the Abbeville Institute is free. So all of this stuff that we provide, lectures, podcasts, uh, articles, all of that is free of charge, so if you like what we do, please consider supporting the Abbeville Institute by giving a tax-deductible donation. Uh, we exist on your generous contributions alone. You can also support the Abbeville Institute by going to our shop page on the uh, website. You'll see at the top of the page it says shop. Click on that. You can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. We've got t-shirts, uh, fleece, polo shirts. So uh, going out there and get those. are embroidered. They're very nice, high-quality shirts and uh, worth your uh, worth your purchase. So, also hats, uh, golf towels, a lot of cool stuff out there. So go ahead and get your Abbeville Institute apparel, and uh, support the Abbeville Institute that way. Uh, of course, to support the institute, go to abbevilleinstitute.org. Again, under support at the top of the page, you'll see uh, donations for individuals, or um, and uh, you click on that, and it'll give you all the donation options. You can donate annually or monthly. So a lot of ways to support the institute. And I'm going to talk about our conference in a minute uh, with one of the articles, but we do have our conference coming up uh, in November, November 10th, 2018 in Dallas, Texas. Time is running out to register, so go to the Abbeville Institute webpage. Middle of the page, you'll see a section that says you're invited. Click on that, and you can uh, go and sign up for our conference. Again, time is running out to get in on that, so you're going to want to. It's going to be a great conference, and that leads me into the material for the week. So Let's talk about what we covered this week at the Institute. In fact, the theme this week, with the exception of one piece, is generally this brewing conflict in America between quote-unquote red states and blue states, and it's a cultural conflict. Um, without question, when, when Pat Buchanan started talking about a cultural war back in the 1990s, I mean, people knew this was happening then. This was 20 years ago, 20, almost 30 years ago now. Uh, people knew this was happening then, but it's gotten even worse here in the last, say, 10 years. And what we're witnessing in, in American politics is the expression of this cultural war because Americans can't even seem to converse anymore about topics of the day because it seems like there are polar opposites in America over a variety of issues. But And no longer this is just, you know, do we need social welfare programs? It's uh, deeper than that. It's fundamentally how we're going to live as people in the United States. What culture are we going to embrace? What values are we going to hold? Is, a, is there, is there a, an American people? And if there is, what values do the American people in general hold? And I think this goes back to, more than anything else, the American founding period. And one of the pieces this week is going to address that. 
But if you go back to 1787 and 1788, there was a discussion in 1787 before the Philadelphia Convention, and then even after the Philadelphia Convention, during the convention itself and afterwards, there was a discussion about should there even be a union at that point. There was uh, talk about perhaps secession. Because the founding generation recognized, and you find example after example of this, that what we were doing with the Union was putting together, in many ways, incompatible things. And this goes back, of course, to the 17th century. When you look at the dominant four British cultural folkways in America, you find that you had the Puritan culture, which dominated New England, and, of course, the Quaker culture, which dominated Pennsylvania. Uh, in stark contrast to the Celtic and Cavalier cultures which dominated the South. The Celtic culture on the frontier, the Cavalier culture in the Tidewater area of Virginia, and then migrating into the Carolinas. So you had these incompatible things at that point, and it, it was deeper than just any issue. It wasn't just, you know, people would say, well, yeah, because of slavery. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't it. Uh, this is, the slavery is, a, is an issue, of course, but it's, it's a symptom of culture. Uh, and, of course, New Englanders uh, were not anti-slavery. In fact, all of your early pro-slavery ideologues came out of New England. So this wasn't even an issue. As, as Larry Tice points out, you, know, if you, you, can't, you can't point to slavery because that was a national issue. Uh, this Pro-slavery was a national position, not a southern position. So the symbol of slavery became an issue. And we'll talk about symbolism. Uh, also things like tariffs, uh, economics... These things were deeper than just a surface opposition to tariffs. There was a cultural backing for that. A way that Southerners and Northerners viewed the world differently. It came down to things like how they viewed liberty, how they viewed power, how they viewed uh, simple things like dining and child-rearing. All of these things were cultural issues. And so this is why if a northerner traveled to the south, they would feel a little out of place. Same, th same thing going the other way. Now, Americans did have much in common here. In one way, they were all Christians. And even if they had differences in theology and denomination and Christian interpretation, uh, they still were all Christians. And so they had that similar value. And, of course, they were all, at least in the 17th century British, in, into the 18th century British, and then moving into the late 18th and early 19th century, they still consider themselves Americans. But that these cultural differences started to fracture as we got into the middle of the 19th century, and a lot of that came down to symbol. And so one thing the Southern tradition expressed longer than any other tradition was this belief in decentralization and the value and merit of it. Now, I know that the, there are people that like to run around saying that Southerners didn't believe in states' rights because, look, in their documents, secession documents, they were opposed to states' rights. Look, they, they argued against nullification. Well, this is true. They did argue against nullification. They argued against nullification because the way that the North was applying nullification they viewed as unconstitutional. And, of course, this gets into the idea of what can you nullify in a constitution, but in the constitution itself. But this was interpretation of the document. Uh, there's others that run around saying that the South wanted to make slavery national, that they firmly believe that slavery uh, was illegal in Massachusetts. The states had no right to abolish slavery. I've seen this argument 
now re, uh, a few times recently that Southerners somehow believed that the states could not abolish slavery. That there's no evidence of that. And oftentimes they'll point to statements that were made in the 1840s when there were discussions about slavery extension of the territories, and there was an effort to say that, well, these new states that came out of the territories could not abolish slavery. They never said anything about New England or New York or Pennsylvania. Um, there was an effort at that point, yes, to ensure that these states were going to be within a certain sphere of influence. Why would Southerners want to do that? And the, the did not come down to, um, they firmly believed that slavery would exist in these states, but it was more about power. And this is something that I emphasize over and over again. These, these debates that we had in the 18th, 19th century were about political power. Whether it was North or South, each section was, was worried about the dominance of the other section when it came to the general government. This goes back to the Philadelphia Convention. These issues were broached there. There was discussion of this before the Philadelphia Convention when, some, when states were talking about leaving the Union. And disunion was seen as dangerous at that point because of defense. If you had a fractured American uh, polity and then a fractured United States where you had two different, maybe you had a United States, Confederate States, you had a Western Confederacy, whatever it was, those areas would be much harder to defend, and then it would be easier for European powers, which were stronger than the United States at that point, the British, the French, to move in and take those regions over, and then you've got a real problem. So there was already discussion then about incompatible things, but the solution to that was always federalism. And even if you look at the American colonial experience, the solution to the problems in the American colonial experience over and over again, was federalism. And, and we didn't, they didn't call it that. But it was an understanding of the British Empire and the British constitutional system that relied on, an, relied on a belief that the central authority in Parliament only had the right to regulate international trade and to defend the colonies. All other matters were left to the colonies themselves. All the internal police, the taxing, all of those things were colonial activities. And you could make the argument, well, they said this because they had no representation in Parliament. But even beyond that, if you go back to 1754 and Benjamin Franklin and his Albany Plan of Union, he said in 1754, well, they don't want a central authority because the colonies are too provincial in their outlook, meaning that they viewed themselves as essentially separate countries from each other. And that was the case even into the late 18th century. I mean, the Articles of Confederation spelled this out. Even in the Constitution, these states still did not trust each other. And this was said in Philadelphia. We don't trust that state in New England to govern us. And New England said, we don't trust that state in the South to govern us. So the solution was always federalism. The central authority could defend the states and could regulate international commerce and commerce between the states, which meant that they wanted a free trade zone. That was it. Every other issue was of state interest, the internal police and the internal affairs. And so what you start seeing and where the conflict comes in America is when you start having nationalism override this understanding of American government. Nationalism has always been the problem. It's never been the solution. It's always been the problem. And northern nationalism 
was in fact northern sectionalism. Because when the North started pushing a, pushing a nationalist agenda, what they really want to do is institute their view of government and society. And they want to foist it on the South and on the Western territories because they want power. I think you could make a case that the South, more than the North, was interested in a truly national system where they were willing to sacrifice their own interests at times for the benefit of the Union. The North was never really willing to do that. And so Northern nationalism was in fact Northern sectionalism. And what we have today is a similar phenomenon. What we have today when people talk about national issues, what they really are interested in is their own issue. Um, whether it's take an issue like abortion on the right uh, or um, an issue like uh, legalization of drugs on the left. What they want, what each side wants, is to foist their opinion on the rest of the American Union and they don't care if 50, close to 50% of the population is opposed to them because this is their worldview and this is what everyone else needs. But when you look at both of those particular issues, they are purely state issues. There's no power in the, cent in, in the Constitution for the central government to regulate either one of these things. And if you don't believe me on, on the drug issue, just look at the fact that the Congress believed in the progressive area that they needed an amendment to uh, make alcohol illegal. Well, if that was the case with alcohol, well, it would be the same case with any type of illicit drugs. You could, maybe, you could make a case they could regulate the transportation of these substances between states, but not in the states themselves. And so the same thing with issues like abortion. Uh, these are all issues that are state issues. It was by design, and the Constitution would not have been ratified had anyone thought otherwise. So this brings us to our conference that we have in November. And I'm going to get into some of these things and how this nationalism is really the danger. Uh, in, in America. Uh, but the conference we have in November, and Don Livingston wrote a little piece about this on Monday, a red-blue coalition. One of the major themes we're going to have and one of the speakers we have coming to the conference is the leader of the CalExit movement. And the leader of the CalExit movement um, is a leftist. And of course, California secession became a popular topic among the left once Donald Trump won the 2016 election. The problem is you have people on the left and the right that think, well, if we can just get back control of Congress, if we can take the presidency, well, then all will be good. And I mean, you see this on the right right now. Just punish the other side. Just give it to them. Stick it in their, rub it in their face. Give them the boot. Kick them when they're down. Uh, let's go ahead and let's just take them out. That kind of language. The left believes the same thing. If they get power, when, when they go low, we kick them. I mean, this is what uh, you know, the former attorney general had to say. When they go low, kick them. Let's beat them down. There's no civility. We need to get in their face. We need to make it to where they can't go to a restaurant. They can't go anywhere. Let's just abuse them. This is very dangerous. What the conference has is we're going to have Mark Ruiz come out, and he says, look, I don't believe in any of that stuff. This is dangerous. I don't want it. What we should do is just part ways. We should create a situation where we have red states so-called red states, which are, uh, under our current color coding are the conservative states, telling blue states, go your own way, and vice versa. In fact, what he wants is conservative states, and there's more of those than there are of liberal states in the United States, to give California permission to leave the Union. Now, we can talk about whether that is necessary or not. 
Uh, Ruiz's position is based on Texas v. White of 1869, where uh, Chief Justice Chase said, well, look, secession is legal if the other states say you can go. So he's basing his position on that Supreme Court decision, which is a very interesting argument. I think one that uh, not many people understand in that Texas v. White decision. We could, we could debate that. And they're going about some things the wrong way with uh, their movement. It's a referendum, so they're just going to say, do we want to have Texas secession to vote on it? What they really need to do is have a referendum on having a convention called to discuss the issue of Texas secession. Uh, and then the people of the state of Texas can decide. But regardless, what he's saying is that this, this hostility this, that we have, that we're going on in America today, this is, this is dangerous. And what we need to do is simply have red states and blue states agree to part ways. This is the exact same thing the founding generation said during the time that the Constitution was being debated and just before that and ratified. I mean, Patrick Henry said the same thing. Governor Morris said, look, if we have incompatible things, he said this in Philadelphia, if we have incompatible things, then we might as well just part ways now because eventually what's going to happen is a great big war. You see, and he was right about this. If, if our ways are incompatible right now, we don't need to be in a union together. And looking at America in 2018, can anyone sincerely say that Americans are compatible anymore, particularly when you're looking at some of the issues that are polarizing people. Are Americans really compatible? Now, I think the majority of Americans don't subscribe to the uh, nastiness of the left in particular, but I think more and more people are. And I think the majority of Americans aren't necessarily far right either. I mean, they, don't, they look at uh, some of the identity politics of the far right with disgust. And rightfully so. But uh, the fact is, we have incompatible things now in America. America is becoming identity-driven. Um, and we can debate the, the merits of that. But this is a fact. Americans are becoming identity-driven for a variety of reasons. And I think that you could say that the, the left is as much part of this as the right. So our conference is looking at, first of all, what can be done about this problem? It's decentralization and secession. And also, can there be people out there on both sides who say the best thing that we could have to avoid a, to avoid a massive, nasty, violent conflict is just to part ways and say, you know what, we're going to part ways as friends, and that's that. And California can leave. Texas could leave. Vermont could leave. I think that if this ever happens, it's going to have to start in a northern state or a, a western state like California, a state that has done has never done, as Don Livingston said, has never done anything wrong. I mean, Vermont is pure as the driven snow. They've never done anything wrong in Vermont. So because of that, Vermont could just leave and no one could say, well, you're leaving, but you're going to try to institute Jim Crow. Right? Nobody would say that uh, because they're just a bunch of hippies. And why can't these hippies just leave and have their green society and uh, their fish music and their Birkenstocks and smoke all the marijuana they want? I mean, this is, people would say, well, they're just peaceful people. They just want to go. And America's too, too violent. So they could do that. If one state like that could pull it off, the rest of America could then be looking at the situation and saying, you know, this isn't, this isn't necessarily bad. It's just like when it comes down to things like nullification. The left is able to get away with it all the time. The right is not. And there's, there's, uh, there's a hypocrisy there, an inconsistency there. But this is why we have Michael Bolden coming to the conference, too, and talking about the Tenth Amendment and efforts that are being made 
and across the United States and how the his history of the Tenth Amendment works and how people are saying, yeah, I mean, this is something that um, northern and southern states uh, could adopt. So it's a discussion of these issues. And I think if you haven't registered for this conference yet, you need to. And the point of all this is that the symbol has become so nasty that we're headed for a very violent confrontation. We're already seeing it. And I think John Devaney's piece on Wednesday does a nice job with this. And in, in relating this to history, you have symbol in the 1850s, which was slavery extension. It was symbol. Southerners understood that slavery was not going to exist in the Western states. I mean, you had less than 40 slaves on the eve of war in 1860 in the Western territories. Less than 40. Um, and so this was all just symbol. And, and Southerners pointed this out. In fact, there was a very interesting debate uh, that, was, that took place in the Congress before Virginia left the Union, where uh, Representative Mason of Virginia said, look, it was, it was, they were talking about the Corwin Amendment, which was the idea that the, the, uh, the an original 13th Amendment that would have made slavery permanent, uh, the general government could not abolish slavery, in other words. The state still could, but the general government couldn't. And uh, Mason of Virginia said, look, this is a stupid amendment. We already know this. The general government cannot abolish slavery. The issue is not in the states. The issue is in the territories, you see. It's symbol. The symbol of can we, can Southerners bring slaves into the territories? But they all knew that slavery wouldn't really exist there. It was just symbol. And so that vitriol that came out of the 1850s was all about symbol. And, and people had adopted the abolitionist view. I mean, it, you started getting symbol in this position. So you had two camps that became so hostile to each other they couldn't even converse on the su on the subject anymore. And part of that was because northerners were calling southerners, you know, the the uh, the drunken vomitous spew of civilization. Uh, I mean, if you say that, if you say the southerners are devils, they're vomit. Well, how can you actually have a conversation with somebody that calls you that? Um, and you see this going on now. There's no conversation to be had because each side is calling each other some type of nasty name. Or they're getting in your face. You can't have a conversation with that. Yelling platitudes uh, and, and shrill voices. and It's just awful. So the symbol is creating problems. And I think Devaney's, and it came down to Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh was, is not a perfect Supreme Court justice nominee. Now he's, he's Justice Kavanaugh. At, in any stretch of the imagination, particularly for conservatives, he was, he's awful on... Uh, overreaching executive power. He's terrible on the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. He's awful on the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. He supports the Patriot Act. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can point to with Kavanaugh and say, this guy wasn't a very good nomination. But that didn't matter anymore because the symbol became, for the left, this guy is, and it came down to one issue, and of course that issue is Roe v. Wade. This guy was an enemy of women, and we're going we're gonna to have par parade witnesses up there that said he's a, and look at how Kavanaugh responded. He's got women sitting behind him. He knew what was going on here? It was all about one particular issue. And the left decided they were going to do whatever they could to stop this guy. It didn't really matter about substance. It was symbol. The symbol of Judge Kavanaugh was uh, white male oppression in society, white male privilege. He drank too much beer. He liked women, whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and that became more important than any other issue that people could have actually brought up and say, you know, um, you've said this about the Fourth Amendment. Do you, do you really believe that? Or you've said this about executive power. Do you really believe that? 
Nobody asked these questions because it all came down to, we got to get the guy on the right on the bench so we can turn the Supreme Court in our favor so we can undo all this liberal legislation. We can go out there and just tick, kick him in the face. Stick it to him. That's the same type of language that led to a great big war in the 1860s. On both sides, you see. And I think John did a nice job with that. And then, of course, on Thursday, we had the piece by uh, Donnie Kennedy talking about the same thing. Whereas the the left's position, the progressive position, is accuse, convict, remove. And it doesn't matter what issue you're talking about. It could be a Confederate statue. That statue is racist. So there's an accusation. We're going to convict without even looking at the evidence. It's just racist because I say it is, and then we're going to remove it. Judge Kavanaugh is, is bad. Even if there's not enough evidence to prove that, we're going to convict and we want him out. It's accuse, convict, remove. The Constitution is racist. Why? Because of the Electoral College or the Three-Fifths Compromise or whatever the case may be. Of course, the Three-Fifths Compromise is gone, but the Constitution is racist. So it has to go. The accusation is made. Convicted because the founding generation were slaveholders, it has to go. You see, this is the tactic now of the progressive left. Accuse somebody of something. You convict them without even really knowing all the evidence. It's just the, the accusation becomes the conviction, and then you remove them. This is a very dangerous position in America because it, can, it has so many pitfalls, and it's a slippery slope. And I know you people say, well, slippery slope is a logical fallacy, but it does happen. So we're getting into a nasty situation in America, and uh, the only solution, of course, is decentralization where the states can actually, and political communities can get together, smaller communities, and live among people that are like them. I mean, this is, what is wrong with that? I mean, I, I think sometimes people don't think logically about this. What is wrong with people living like people that you want to live around? What's wrong with people living the, around the people you want to be around? There, there's nothing wrong with that. Yet, we think there is something inherently wrong with that because, well, you, you might exclude somebody. Um... And so we have, but this is what the states were designed to do, to serve the best interests of the political community, the people that lived in those states, the internal police, the internal affairs of those states. That's federalism. California can be as leftist as it wants to be, and all the lefties could move out to California, and nobody in the red states would complain. Uh, they, they, they wouldn't say a word. Yeah, move out there. We don't want you around here anyways. We can live the way we want to live then. And in that great... Because doesn't that solve the problem? Uh, and then you can worry about whatever laws in California you want. We'll worry about whatever laws in Oklahoma we want. Or whatever laws in Virginia we want. Whatever the case may be. And the central authority then loses all of its power. See, the central authority doesn't want this because that then makes them less powerful. They don't want that. They want the power. Again, it comes down to power. It's all about power. So... Uh, and, and, of course, the, the piece on Friday by Boyd Cathy, same thing. I mean, here he's, he's in a situation. He's working at the Department of Archives in North Carolina, and somebody makes a comment about the briar patch, and then the, the, everything hits the fan. And uh, at that point, they have to have sensitivity training. And Boyd said, he goes in, he says, well, wait a second, we're at the, we're at the Department of Archives. How can we even talk about history without worrying about uh, being called a racist? We, what, if we bring up the Confederacy, if we bring up you know, Jim Crow era in North Carolina, well, we could be called a racist for saying any of these things. So this is just ridiculously stupid. And, of course, the sensitivity training for him then ended. They just said, all right, you go, you go on. You're done. 
But somebody made an accusation. Somebody said in a meeting, well, I don't want to go down the briar patch. That's racist. The accusation was made. The conviction was made that there was a racist statement without even looking into the context. And then they had to have, not removal, but they had to have sensitivity training. But as he points out, you could be removed for saying things like this today. For a simple statement that had no that had no intention of hurting anybody or saying anything that was uh, you know offensive or in, even intending to offend. You could be uh, doused with uh, you know sensitivity training. Uh, so this is this is where we're getting into this symbol over reality, and I think John was that John Devaney did a nice job with that. This this really comes down to that. It doesn't really matter about reality anymore. If you make a statement that's seen as offensive, even if you intended not to offend somebody, well, you're convicted anyways, and you have to go on an apology tour. Thankfully, some people are saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to apologize for something I didn't intend to do. Uh, and So there is a pushback against this, and I think that's the natural reaction to some of these things. Uh, it can go too far, but there is a pushback. And um, when you look at the Southern tradition, there is there is something valuable in that, and that the pushback is decentralization. Fine. Look, you can have your communist utopia in your state. We're just not going to agree with it anymore, and we don't want to be governed by you. And you and the communists could say, well, we can have our communist utopia, and we don't want to be governed by you Bible-thumping, gun-toting rednecks in the South. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be the preferable thing to do? And I think four of the pieces this week really get into this, and our conference is going to get into this, and you're going to want to attend that conference. The last piece of the week is entitled Taking Root. It's a book review, so we've been doing our weekly book reviews now for almost a year. Uh, and it's a book review uh, and, uh, by, uh, by Alan Harrelson. The title of the book is Taking Root, The Nature Writing of William and Adam Summer of Pomeria, which, of, of course, was a, it's a, uh, a nursery now in South Carolina. It's, it's uh, edited by Jim Kibler and a foreword by Wendell Berry. Um, and so I think uh, Alan does a nice job. Of course, Alan Harrelson is a is a first class ban- <coughs> banjo player, but uh, he's working on his PhD in history, and he's a, he real agrarian, owns a farm now. And this is part of the Southern tradition too that people miss. And a lot of times, you know, we we there's a lot of common ground I think in uh, areas that people don't necessarily realize with the Southern tradition, and even people on the left. They, they have a different view of environmentalism than people on the right generally. But this idea of agrarianism, the, the agrarian tradition is purely Southern. And uh, Wendell Berry is a nice example of that. And we, we get into these things uh, uh, over time. We've talked about agrarianism in the South and how important it is to have that tie to the land because it's community. Uh, and it's the same thing. I mean, if you have small communities and you have... You have people that want to live around each other and have a certain economy or society. Well, that's where decentralization works. And uh, the idea is that these antebellum Southerners were were looking at these things, uh, looking at agrarianism as a way of maintaining this idea of small is beautiful, an Aristotelian society, uh, where small is beautiful, Aristotelian society, but within the context of Western civilization and Christianity. Um, and it's about creation. Um, as, as Alan said, um, contrary to the New England transcendentalism of Emerson and Thoreau, the Summers exemplified a view of nature as the creation, of man as the created, a creature of limitations. Nature, rather than being separate from the human experience, is an essential part of it. Man derives his substance, his sus- uh, sorry, sustenance from the land, well-tended and nurtured, and thus the land becomes an extension of himself. 
It is land that provides a sense of place and belonging. In many ways, Adam and William Summer continued to see nature similar to how historian Andrea Wolfe described Washington and Jefferson, that is, as gentlemen who saw the American natural world as the greatest symbol of individual liberty and republicanism. And so that is a really valuable part of the Southern tradition. And it, it gets down to this, you, in order to have federalism work, you have to have a real culture to maintain. And I think that this is something that's part of that. We have to maintain something, and that something is this view of liberty and republicanism that's purely Southern. Uh, so you can't have political decentralization without a culture. Um, and that what, what are you defending uh, is the question. It can't just be about taxes. It has to be about something else. So that, that real Southern culture is something worth defending. And I think Alan did a nice job in describing that here in this particular piece. All right, so again, attend our conference in Texas, sign up for it, go to our webpage, get on board with that. Um, if you don't want to go, you want to give some money for scholarships, uh, we've got that. So uh, you can do that as well, or if you can't attend, think about that. Um, and always, always, always think about uh, supporting the Abbeville Institute uh, through a tax-deductible contribution. Just go to our webpage for that information. Until next time, good day. Good day.